Welcome to the Dave Duran Show, where faith and the workplace meet. We discuss the tips, tools, and resources to help you become a better leader, employee, or entrepreneur. And as always, I'm joined by our host, Dave Duran. Today, we'll be discussing an important topic, getting past excuses. As always, stick around for some listener Q&A where you get to ask the questions. Feel free to email those questions over to Dave at LeadingGiants.com so that Dave can go ahead and answer them. Uh, So Dave, getting past excuses. I know you have some common excuses for not accepting responsibility that you've heard over your years in entrepreneurship, in leadership specifically. What are those? By the way, what I can also tell you is what they are not. And our guest, Sam Blair, coming up after the break. Navy SEAL. This is a guy who does not make excuses. You cannot be a Navy SEAL and make excuses. So people are going to want to stick around for that. That's right. But as far as excuses, the non-Navy SEAL oriented way, right, would be, um, you know, I think one of the things we have to realize is that all of us are capable of it, right? So you've heard me say many times that there are three primary intrinsic motivators for us. Number one is love. It's totally self-giving. Number three is fear, Right. And there's a lot of cousins to fear insecurity, which is why we act up during interviews. We're nervous, all that kind of stuff. Why we we're we're not good uh, at maybe the the first play in the game or before the first punch as a a fighter. My experience, of course, in, in martial arts. But then what happens is you you get into that flow as your confidence starts to build. You move away from fear. But the sticky wicket is that second one. And that's self justification. Self justification is fueled by pride. And self-justification is really um, at the core of excuses. So we, we're all capable of it. And I think that's the most important thing to remember. But we just get specific, or I should say we get um, uh, complex, right, uh, about our excuses. Our excuses are so um, complex and so layered that they can appear to be good things, but they're bad. You know, uh, like even, even I've heard people pray this way, right, Lord, Please help my book become a bestseller, you know, for the people. Yeah, right. Okay, probably for the people. Hopefully that's true. But you want a bestseller so that you have a bigger business, you make more money, that kind of thing. So we have complex motivators. And by the way, it's not a bad idea to pray that your New York Times, your book becomes a New York Times bestseller because you want it to do well and you want prosperity and you want greater influence. Those are good things. But what happens is the more authentic real prayer is, Lord, I want to help the readers of the book. I wrote it in order to influence and impact change for a good thing. And also, by the way, I have these other things that I desire more personally because God knows these things, right? Well, when we're interacting with other people, though, we usually leave out that second half that you would want to include in the prayer because God knows no matter what your motivation but the funny thing about it, Nico, is that, you know, we're, we're so complex in our ability to make excuses that we don't even think God recognizes them. I mean, literally, we, we you know, you, you, you hear sometimes from priests without ever breaking the seal of confession. They would never do that. But you hear sometimes them talk about the essence of what happens in a confession. And they'll say the essence of what happens in a confession is oftentimes people say, forgive me, Father, for my spouse has sinned. Here are all of his or her sins, (laughs) you know, and they justify their own behaviors because the behaviors of their spouse. Well, the behaviors of the spouse might be bad, but it doesn't justify their own sins. Um, And so I think we just have to be cautious that we're all capable of these things and that they're sophisticated and that we're very good at hiding them under the banner of something righteous that really isn't. Yeah, I agree. I think um, obviously this self-justification part is probably my 
toughest battle, if I'm being honest with you. But Dave, if you were to break it down into kind of five common excuses, what have you heard from, again, your time in leadership, leading other people, and of course, dealing with your own <laughs> self as, as someone who's you know, built and sold uh, businesses in the past? Oh, I've never made an excuse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. The reason that you know these things is not just in the excuses others make, but the ones you recognize in yourself. First one, I'm too busy. People use this all the time. Um, hey, uh, Nico, what are you doing Thursday afternoon? Uh, why? Uh, I need a ride to the airport. I'm busy. <laughs> okay. Hey, Nico, what are you doing Thursday afternoon? Why? I'm throwing a party for you, and there's going to be a bunch of people celebrating how awesome you are. I'm free. So what's the difference there, right? We're, we're, we're preserving our time. We're asking ourselves, you know, if this is really important to me, I will make time and I have it. But if it's not, I won't. So people will say these sorts of things. And I've heard people say it. I've heard people say things like, you know, gosh, if I just had the time, I would read self-help. And yet they will talk to you about how they just binge watched three shows on Netflix. And so this is just more important to them than reading something about how to develop their own holy life or, or how to develop something under the banner of, you know, their trade or to become a better person, you know. And so we just have to remember, and, and we make this excuse for prayer all the time, by the way. Oh, you know, I'm not like that person who can go to mass every day or who prays the rosary every day. Um, my, my life is, I w- you know what? If I wasn't busy, I'd do it. And here's the question I always ask. Oh, okay, you've got a week off. You just took vacation, staycation. Are you going to go to mass? Are you going to pray the rosary? No. Why? Because I don't have the time. Oh, okay. Well, that might be legitimate. You don't have the time. Hey, so let's look back on your vacation. What'd you do? Well, I slept in. I relaxed. I cleaned the garage. Okay, good for you. But was there something more you could have done? Now, I am not telling people. If if we were required to go to mass every single day, the church would, would tell us. But... I'm just saying that when people make these excuses, they're really not great ones. You know, I would exercise. I just don't have the time. Okay. I would eat right. I just don't have the time. Um, I would, I would help my ailing brother, father, mother. Uh, I just, I don't have the time. Uh, but yet we find time for the things that we are important to us. So I just think it's one that we have to be careful about and ask, well, what, what does your checkbook look like? You know, what does your calendar look like? What does your Netflix account look like? That will tell you whether or not you actually have the time or you're making an excuse. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate because I'm sitting in front of the author of Time Management for Catholics. So I think <laughs> he may know a thing or two about time management. Um, but what would be number two, the top second or maybe the second excuse, not top second, second excuse that you've heard people say for not accepting responsibility? I didn't know. Uh, nobody told me. And one of the reasons this is such a poison is because it's like a, a, a victim mentality. You know, how come nobody told me? You know, m- most people are not informed by others all day long. They go and they seek to be informed on what is important that they need to know. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. They're engaged with the people that matter they stay up on trade information. They effectively check their emails the way they're supposed to. They don't miss the meetings. They read the notes and they know these things. But a lot of times people say, nobody told me, even though they just never sought the information or they're so disengaged with others 
that that's why they're not telling them. You know, what what type of a friend are you? What kind of an employee are you? What kind of a partner are you? Are you the person that that keeps an open dialogue so others will want to inform you? Or are you the type of person that basically sends a stiff arm out to the world saying, I'm not interested in talking to you. And then you're offended when they don't talk to you. I mean, um, nobody told me it's a really bad excuse. Now, here's something that's actually important to point, point out. There is a legitimacy at times to I am too busy. And there is a legitimacy to nobody told me you were off the list and, and they forgot and you were you should have been informed and you wouldn't have known if somebody didn't tell you. The reason that we use these excuses is because they are plausibly deniable is because there is a legitimacy in there that's almost impossible to argue against. You don't have time. Who's the person in charge of whether or not you have the time? You. So there's no higher authority to bump this up to in an appeal in order to determine whether or not you have time. That's why we use the excuse. Nobody told me. Well, we sent an email. Uh, we, we, we sent a text. Well, I didn't get it. Okay, well, there's no way to prove that. Uh, you know, it must not have gone through. Technology was bad, right? Even though maybe it did, but you have plausible deniability. So I realize there's some legitimacy at time to these, but that's why we have to be so good at paying attention to what's actually happening in our life. And we don't self-justify things and that we have the humility to take a look at the actual circumstance and then the courage to make moves that we need to make once we realize we should accept the responsibility. I already feel like I'm making an examination of conscience over here, Dave. I yeah, mean, this how about is really it? Good. Um, what would number three be on those list of excuses? But I don't know how. <laughs> Someone's always said that way. Why would I just don't know how? Well, figure it out then. Now, I'm, we're not talking about anything in particular, right? But that's what people do. They, they, I would do this. I just don't know how. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. Well, find the answers. I mean, people who accomplish great things in life, they find the answers. And there's never been a time more now than you, you can go online and pretty much get a micro-learning lesson about virtually everything. Now, we have to be careful with that because there's bad information out there and you don't want to go to a surgeon that took, you know, some master class online from an 18 year old that's telling him how to do surgeon that doesn't know anything about surgery, but wants a lot of followers on YouTube. I mean, these are real things that happen out there. But for the most part, they're very simple things. And I love it. You know, how come you didn't replace the water filter in your refrigerator? I don't know how. Oh, that's online. I can guarantee that's online. Okay, virtually anything out there you can learn how to do. Well, I don't know how to pray. Well, that's online. Uh, I don't I don't know how to give a speech. Huh? That's online also. Okay, so if you want to learn something, I don't know how to start a business. Oh, that's all over online. Okay, just go learn it. Don't be afraid to learn it. If you don't know how, learn how and great things can happen. You know, it used to be said, uh, and this was the title of a, a pretty prominent book, Who Not How, right? And uh, Dan Sullivan, if I'm not mistaken. Dan Sullivan, you're right. And I think uh, that is, is kind of Trump now by Google it or uh, chat GPT it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, to your point, it makes sense. You can Google everything nowadays. Uh, this one, okay, is probably one I used a little too much when I was 13, 14, 15, 16. What's number four? Yeah, and, and by the way, now that society in the world calls college students, not men and women, but children, college kid, and you know, you're know you a kid until you're 26, and then 
you're off your parents' insurance because you're a kid. Uh, hilarious, by the way. The last <laughs> thing that I ever would have wanted when I was 18 years old was to be called a kid. And the last thing I ever would have expected in life was to be on my parents' insurance until I was 26 years old. Um, this is a fascinating thing. I gave all my kids a lecture, by the way, when they were young. And I'm going to get to the question. You have to bring me back because, you know, Nico, I'll go on a little <laughs> tangent. I, the, the, the lecture I gave my kids, um, all six of them, I said, listen, when you're 18, you're either going to go to college or not. And that's going to be up to you. Not every college is not for everyone. But if you decide not to go to college and you're 18, you're an adult. And what you're saying to, to me is I'm adult. I'm ready for life. I don't need to be further educated. In which case you're going to move up. Because if you're saying you're an adult, you need to live like an adult. I'm an adult and you're an adult. So you go be an adult and I'll be an adult. If you're going to go to college, then you're going to be able to live at home during the summers when you're at college. And then when you graduate from college, you're going to uh, live someplace else on your own. You will be an adult and you will be educated. And you need to get a job and live on your own. Now, if you have a commission job, I'll let you stay for the summer after college just to build up commissions. Or if you're going to be a teacher or something like that. Otherwise, you're on your own. I also want you to save a certain amount of money before college. And I designated that money. I started these conversations with them when they were seven, eight, nine. And when my older kids, I'll never forget it, when my, my oldest, who is now 32, when he was 18 and he came back home for the summertime, the younger kids who are, you know, gosh, you know, 11 years younger, 12 years younger, they were laughing. They're seven or eight. They're like, Kevin, you're a full grown adult and you're living in the basement of your parents' house. How is that? And it, to them, it was like, that was the joke. That was like the commonality. And so, you know, I, five out of six, by the way, have accepted the challenge and they're all out and either married and, and had jobs right away, never questioning it. It was, I've never had the conversation one time with my kids. Can I live with you as an adult? And, uh, I have the sixth will graduate in two years and I am absolutely certain that he will be accepting that same challenge, uh, without any conversation. Now, I am not claiming to be the uh, end-all answer uh, to all things parenting, but, but I am suggesting that when you have this sort of discussion with people early on, you head off the excuses that lead to somebody being 38, 39 years old and playing video games in their parents' house. And by the way, I have empathy for people who have taken some wrong turns, and that's happening. But if you really want to help that person, you need to free that person from that circumstance Whenever I talk to parents, by the way, that are trapped in this, where their kids, you know, started at 21 at home, now they're 25 at home, now they're 28 at home, now they're 32 at home, the parents say the same thing. Yeah, but they're depressed. Or yeah, but they're trying their hardest. Yeah, but they just haven't found their way. Yeah, they're searching. You know why they haven't? I'm going to tell you why they're depressed, because they're still living at their parents' home, not being productive. That's why they're depressed. Now, are there mitigating circumstances? Yes, there are. Maybe uh, one of the parents has passed away. Uh, there's, there's something that makes it honorable for that person to be in the home. But how do you know the difference? That person living with their parents is productive while they're living there. They're not just waking up every single day and playing video games and doing nothing online. They're productive and they're living with their parents for a very charitable reason, a good reason. So I want to be very kind to distinguish the difference between these two. This is an essence of things, not the particular things. But they're depressed because they're at home living with their parents. They're, they're depressed because they're doing nothing with their life. And they're depressed because you don't trust them enough to set them free. Now, you think that they're going to be upset 
because you say, let's get out. But frankly, that's what you've got to do. You've got to say, listen, hey, you know what? You've been here. I'm going to give you a one-month timeline. You have one month to find a job, and then you're out because I love you. And whether it's one month or it's three months, whatever it happens to be, but it has to be a real thing. You, can, you are not helping a person to keep them in a circumstance which will make them miserable and unproductive. People have to accept the adventure of life. They have to take risks in life. They have to do things which prevent the excuse making. And that is hard. That hurts. It hurts a little bit, but it's really what is required. Okay. Now, what was this third thing again? Well, I got to say that was a solid tangent. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So it was worth the wait. Number four, what is... The excuse that most teenagers and everyone's doing it. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. I, you asked the question before, yes. so I, I, I rudely cut you off to sex, but I, okay. So anyway, the, uh, everyone's doing it. The classic teenage excuse, you know, it's a reverse type of excuse. The other ones were excuses for not doing things. This is an excuse for doing things. I do this bad behavior because everyone's doing it. And, you know, it's the classic response. If everybody jumped off a cliff, would you jump off the cliff? La, 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 la. Um, by the way, there's, that's like age-old wisdom. That's actual wisdom. It's like you don't just follow the crowd. The question is, why does everybody do it? What do they get out of it? What is the outcome they get? Just because you normalize bad behavior doesn't make the normal bad behavior good behavior. Now it's just more common bad behavior. This is just a matter of maturity and thinking it through. So it's important that if you're guiding somebody, you give them that classic questioning, you know, that, you know, misery loves company. And ironically, young people and older people, too, will do miserable things just because a lot of other people do the miserable thing and it makes them feel more normal. And then they basically get addicted to it. And we have to free them and recognize and understand that normal doesn't mean good. And if you're going to really carve a path in life, you're going to you're going to take the path probably least traveled. Or as you say, don't live by the law of averages to a certain degree. Right. Right. Um, Okay. Number five, probably one I will not say uh, ever in (laughs) working with you, Dave, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, Number five. (laughs) It's not my problem. Uh, this is a funny one. Um, you know, okay, job, I'm going to go to job descriptions because people use this in the job description thing. They go, well, that's not in my job description. Uh, it is impossible to put every... Now, let's, first of all, let's begin with this. Your problems are actually your friends to a certain degree. That doesn't mean you're, you don't want to free yourself from a problem. You want to solve the problem. But every single job on planet Earth is there to solve a problem. Now, sometimes nefarious characters will create problems that shouldn't be created in the first place in order to solve them with nefarious solutions. But for the most part, the room is dirty. We, need, we have a problem. We need to hire somebody to clean it. We need to market this. There's a problem. We don't know how to market it. We need to hire somebody to do that. There's a problem. We need to manufacture this. We don't have anybody to manufacture it. We don't have the supplies to manufacture it. We don't have somebody to make decisions about that. We don't have the money. Somebody comes in to solve those problems. So when we complain too much about our problems, we're complaining our way right out of a job, first and foremost. And we have to solve those problems. Um, But it's impossible to list every single one of them in any sort of dynamic or growing organization or anybody's life outside of their work. You can't list them all. And so it's not my problem. By the way, again, with the rest of these things, it has a certain amount of merit to it, right? Right. 
there is a time where the advice you'd give somebody is, hey, <laughs> that's not your problem. You're too worried about other people's problems and you're too involved in them. You have to focus on what's important for you. And in fact, you're, you're managing and solving other people's problems to the degree that you don't have time for your own, which allows you to say, I don't have time, which allows you to say, uh, you know, uh, everyone is doing it. All these other excuses, you can, you can actually distract from them. We talk about primary and secondary responsibilities. You know, your primary responsibility is to make sure you feed the kids. Secondary responsibility is clean the kitchen. And if you said, well, I can't feed my kids today because I'm cleaning the kitchen, that's obviously a problem. Right. Okay. It doesn't, cleaning the kitchen is important, but it doesn't justify not feeding your kids. So you have to accept responsibilities. And when you're on a team and you say, that's not my problem, you're basically stiff arming all sorts of people. Now, also, Nico, it is true that there's a time where even in the workplace, we can't own other people's problems that are not their own. And I particularly say this from the top down, right? If you've got an employee that's working on something and you've given them the authority, the responsibility, the, 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 the means, the tools uh, to get something done and they're not getting it done and you now absorb that as your problem, you're weakening the employee and you need to empower them to get it done. So that's why these things are so difficult and why they're tied up in excuse making because they are... They are very close to the truth, and quite often they are actually true, but we have to be very, very cautious not to um, indulge in them just because they are usable, sometimes legitimately. I got to say, this was a a good uh, list here for my next examination of conscience for sure, but definitely one I'll be using for my kids as I raise future leaders here in the next coming years. We'll be right back with our guest, Sam Blair, a former Navy SEAL and a giant in leadership. So stay tuned for that after these messages. Welcome back to the Dave Duran Show. Today we're joined by our guest, Sam Blair. Sam is the current CEO of Valletta Industries and a former Navy SEAL officer with over a decade of experience leading the most elite teams around the globe. Sam holds an MBA from Cornell University and an undergraduate degree in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Sam also holds a professional certification from Georgetown University and an executive certification from MIT with a focus on building, leading, and sustaining the innovative organization. It goes without saying, Sam knows how to lead. Well, Sam is here to talk about how faith has played an integral part in his ability to lead as both a former Navy SEAL and an entrepreneur. Take it away, Dave. You've done big things. You've, you've, you've had to face a lot of challenges. How does your faith play a role in this? Uh, this is, you know, this is something that uh, I suppose some people are going to say not at all. Uh, and some people are going to say it was at the core. Um, how does it play out in your life? I think it's, it's, it, it's absolutely foundational for me. And at the same time, it's been a journey, too. I, I kind of bit it into like three different phases, Dave. I think the, the first phase for me was in high school when I realized that faith is real, God is real, sacraments are real, all of this is real. It, it took me a hot minute, but then it's, I think the second phase of my life was orientating myself towards leading a sacramental, virtuous life. And, and then you think, oh, I'm doing great. Like, I'm, I'm, when the Lord says go left, I go left, or says right, I go right. You know, I'm, I'm, you're starting to like be attuned to what it is to have an interior life and and read Scripture. And but this this last phase, this third phase that I call it, is this one of s- surrender 
And I'm just starting to bump up against that. And I think I'll be wrestling that one for a long time. And, and I think part of this is when I got out of the military, you know, I, I started the entrepreneurial path. You know, I'm used to short burst communication. I'm used to knocking down plates. And I realized, you know, you get into the civilian sector, people aren't in your platoon. One, so they don't have the same, there's not a same common denominator of individuals you're working with. Two, when you're reaching out to maybe prospective clients, they don't have to respond to you, which was like a surprise to me. You're in a platoon, you ask someone, they say, yeah, and get things going and you start achieving things. Um, that's not the case in the civilian sector. You could, I have that with my team because we've, a bunch of us have, from the Naval Special Warfare have gotten together and or we're moving out on an, uh, a venture together. There's that aspect. But w- because of that, I think it, it was a forcing function for me to look at my life and say, why isn't this happening faster? Why aren't these results being achieved? And I think there is an element of self-righteousness, pride. I realized like the Lord wanted to do that work alongside me. And there's an element of surrender there, which is difficult for a Western male. It's difficult for um, someone coming out of my community. We don't like the idea of surrender. We don't, and, and that's part of the spiritual life. So there's this element of yes, achieve, yes, like use and leverage your gifts and talents, understanding what leadership is. And my, my definition is love. And, and that, that also encompasses doing hard things, saying hard things, achieving hard things. But in the spiritual life, there's also this element of surrender, which I think goes back to, can God be trusted? Is he good? And that question has to be wrestled to the ground before you can truly surrender in the spiritual life. And and it's not going to make you a millionaire leading a virtuous life. It's not going to make you a millionaire leading a surrendered life of holiness or pursuit thereof. But it's the right thing. That's where we're, we're, our goal, my goal, is heaven. You know, and, and I think not only leading my family to heaven, but trying to be an example to my team, um, the people we work with, our clients, the whole thing. And whether that's overt or invert, that's the goal, you know, and pretty other actions. Yeah, and your summary, hey, I was trying to get to heaven and get everybody there. That is that is it. But you know, you said something. It's not going to make you a millionaire, right? The Living this uh, Catholic ritualist life, or it's not going to make you, you know, necessarily successful, successful. but it, it is actually going to increase those odds tremendously. You know, I, I do po- poke a little bit of fun at the health and wealth gospel, but we know if you're going to be honest, hardworking, virtuous, if somebody says, well done, good and faithful servant, and you didn't bury your talents, it is likely that shows up with the way you do your job. And that's a pretty big advantage, isn't it? I, I agree with you. I, I think there's also the, the um, scenario where you lead a virtuous life and you can end up in a gulag, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Some, and when we look at this from a Catholic perspective, the reason, well, what I said does not fall short as far as the natural principle, hard work yields results. Honesty, you're trusted, you'll attract better people, better decisions through prudence, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that some of the holiest people on planet Earth went through the toughest times and they lived the most difficult lives because God allowed them to suffer that way in order for them to have the high place in heaven that they have. And that is quite a mystery, but a pretty amazing thing. So uh, unless we are uniquely called to that, we are definitely wise to put these strategies in place, first and foremost, to go to heaven and lead others there, Second of all, the temporal benefit and effect by living a good life. In the last, you know, three, four minutes, what, do, what, what would you want to share with an audience? Let's say you're talking to somebody that's 35 years old. They feel like they need to make a change in life. They're not exactly where they want to be. Maybe they're, they, they're wondering if they should be an entrepreneur or take a risk or make a job move. 
Well, what advice would you have to that person about making decisions and doing it in a courageous fashion? Starting with the end goal in mind has always been helpful for me. Just understanding, like, where do I want to be? Because then you can start planning and calculating and you can start orientating towards that, that end state versus just saying, yeah, I want to achieve this in five years. Great. But ultimately, I'd go further down the road. Like, wh- what, what does that look like? And for me, you know, I, I think it's, so it's heaven. So making sure like everything is lined up there and everything's in line with my, my core value system. It's getting my family to heaven. So making sure that they're thriving, they're happy. We have time, space, all of those things. And then it's like, okay, well, how do I achieve that? Resources. So how do I achieve that? Crushing business. How do I achieve, how do I crush in business? And then just start pulling those onions back and having those strategies that end up with that end state. I think the other thing is, I, I just share these last two pieces. This is coming from a guy named Alex Howard, which I love. He talks about humility and magnanimity. Humility is understanding that all of our gifts and talents come from God. And magnanimity is a summation of those gifts, like Aristotle talks about, and that we do have those gifts and talents and to, to use them. And I think a lot of times Christians uh, of any denomination, we have humility to impact, but we think, oh, uh, there's this, there's this reluctance to actually enter the city square and leverage those gifts and talents for not only the glory of God, but for our community, our family, and to be out there chest out to leveraging the God-given gifts and talents we've been given. Um, and I think to hold back, especially if you have your 35 and you have an inclining to a specific domain or industry or the desire to be an entrepreneur, I'd say go for it. And part of that is knowing God is good. So there's that. God put that desire in your heart. I, I would look at that seriously because I think the temptation there is comfort and saying, well, I can also just stick with this path because it's comfortable. It's known even though my dreams are over here. And I think a lot of times people don't pursue those because there's this reluctance uh, to, to, to make that move. And I related back to the story I shared earlier. You can sit there and be like, yeah, I'm comfortable right now, but you're taking heavens. Or you can achieve the end state and get up and start making a move. This is the Dave Durant Show. We'll be back in just a moment with our Q&A segment. Welcome back to the Dave Duran Show. What a great segment we had with Sam Blair, former Navy SEAL and leadership giant. Dave, we're going to move on to our Q&A segment here. And for the record, anyone who has any questions for Dave can get that one-on-one mentorship here with him live on air. And that's sending your questions to Dave at LeadingGiants.com. So the first question that I have lined up for you, Dave, uh, says, Dear Dave, I recently came across your show and was pleasantly surprised. I was really into self-help books until I came into my faith about two years ago. Since then, I've been hungry for material that can help me grow to live the life that I've dreamed of, yet not get into murky waters with all the new age stuff. I know I'm still young in my faith, but are there any pointers you have for me? Thanks, Susan. Dave? Uh, Great question, Susan. I actually went through this myself. I had a a conversion experience uh, in in my own life. I was born and raised Catholic. I went to Mass every Sunday, but I did it kind of just to hedge my bet against hell, to be frankly honest about it. It wasn't uh, until I had my conversion where I I really actually started to fall in love with Jesus and his church. Um, So when I did read all of the self-help and I did, I read a ton of it and I was doing a lot of, I was actually speaking and writing and, and, and doing seminars and building businesses. And I, I, I sounded like every kind of classic self-help person out there. I was certified in all sorts of self-help techniques like neuro-linguistic programming and, and whatnot. 
Anyway, at a certain point, I started to recognize some new age ideas and concepts in there. And even though I really wasn't that grounded in my faith, I, I knew there was something kind of amiss about them. And uh, when I went through my conversion, I started reading uh, more like good, true, actual history. Okay, uh, I read uh, a lot of philosophy, a lot of theology. I haven't stopped in the past, you know, 20 some years of doing that, almost 30 years. My goodness. Wow. Time has flown. Uh, and and I continue to do so. So what I would say is that the self-help material that is out there, as long as it is absent of new age concepts, it's pretty good. There's some practical living experiences. You know, people say things like, you know, um, if you if you're not willing to take a risk, you can't get the reward. And for the most part, that is true. You measure the weight of the risk to the weight of the reward. True. Uh, if you work hard, you can accomplish things. Very, very true. You have to sacrifice. Yes. But if we don't really ground ourselves in the faith, we get confused about these things and we don't know how much is too much and how little is too little. So we have to understand truly human nature from the maker of human nature and that we can learn through the fullness of our faith. So I'm going to encourage you to continue to stay on this path. And I think what's going to happen is the self-help material that you read is going to be illuminated by the theology and the philosophy that you now learn through the church. And I'd start with basics like the catechism and the Bible and Bible reviews. Uh, but then I'd read people like Joseph Pieper and the Cardinal Virtues. And when you continue to do this, you're going to actually be able to put these other things in like a, you know, like a, a, a hyper turbo mode. So for example, there's a book called uh, atomic Habits. I'm not endorsing or not endorsing Atomic Habits. In fact, I will tell you that I have not read the book from cover to cover. I've just uh, perused it and have listened to uh, interviews by its author. And from what I've gathered in these, okay, it's quite a basic book. But why am I talking about it? Because it is the number one business and self-help book for the past five years. Millions of copies. And it is on basic things that you do to perform habits. Now, again, some of you may have read it and would say, hey, Dave, actually, there's something deeper here. And that would be great. That would be great. But I have not heard in any of the interviews uh, from the author James, uh, author, James Clear, anything about the virtues. I've heard a lot about habits, but not the virtues. Well, when you understand human nature and you understand our faith, you start to recognize that the cardinal virtues are actually basically the muscles of the intellect and the will. They are the habits that we build through our virtues, which make them longer sustainably, or they're, they're something you can have for a much more sustainable period of time. We can always backslide. But when you build these things, you build them from a different perspective. So if you were to learn that, and then you read something like a book like that, I have a feeling it's just going to give it way more gravitas. It's going to be a powerful thing. Now, I also want to be very clear that this, again, is not an endorsement or a criticism of James Clear and the book. It's certainly, it has struck a chord with people, with it, which I think is fantastic. I will say this, that the Catholic material that I read is by far deeper on human nature and self-help, to do kind of a quote, than anything else. And it can lead to super hyper-performance from the self-help perspective. Now, certainly the catechism and philosophy is not going to be like a trade magazine, okay, that you want to learn manufacturing, so you're going to get it from that. You're not. So you want to make sure that you're going to learn your trade from the specific trade magazines. But you're talking about self-help in particular, 
And a book like Atomic Habits is a self-help oriented thing. Now, authors like James Clear may or may not intentionally do this, but they're writing to an audience that rejects a certain amount of deep thinking and they can't go much deeper than is there. Now, individually, some of the people who read the book can and want to and are willing to, but to have a, ma- a big selling book, you need to kind of keep it at a certain amount of like um, digestibility for the common audience. And that is actually not a criticism of the author. It's more of a compliment, really, because uh, the most brilliant people that I know like to take complex ideas and put them in simple, usable terms. And I think that makes a whole lot of sense. But you're kind of bouncing between these two worlds of self-help. And some people fully reject that. They say self-help books are silly. Don't read them. Just read theology and philosophy. I don't believe that it makes a lot of sense. I think using some modern language and modern terms uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, because, see, you want to do more than one thing with your self-help. You want to not only advance yourself, but you also want to help others do it. And I can guarantee that if you start your business meeting with, let's open the catechism and let's read what it has to say about the cardinal virtues, you're going to lose them. But if you do say, hey, let's talk about great decision-making. Now, there's an actual virtue that is encompasses great decision-making, and it's called prudence. And in order to have prudence, there are three things you need to do. Now, you're talking about it, but you're not talking about it as a Catholic from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And you're going to take this great material that you can find in the Catechism, and you're going to use all of what you learned in the secular material on self-help in order to make it absorbable for... Absorbable, Nico, is that even a word? Making it something people can absorb, okay, uh, so that they can use it. And for me... I've always found that self-help makes the most sense, yes, for ourselves, but also at some point in life, you become the mentor to somebody else. And what it is that you've learned, you're going to enthusiastically want to share with others. Because if you know you can help others become their best, ultimately speaking, the number one thing that makes us our best is to be a saint, you're going to want to do that. And sometimes it's normal, simple, human, self-help-oriented terms that we can use backed up and supercharged by an understanding of human nature, which we can gather from all of the materials we learn in philosophy and theology. I think it was St. Augustine that said, oh God, let me know myself and let me know you, you know, convinced that eventually discovery of God began with a discovery of oneself. I think that's where a lot of this self-harm stuff stems from, but you know, I could be wrong. Um, Dave, let's move on to question number two. Uh, Liz says, Dave, I love your show. Uh, my son has been trying to get into entrepreneurship as far back as I can remember. He's watched a few online personalities and followed some of these gurus, but none of them seem to have anything to offer outside of making money. I see that you've accomplished much in life. And so my question is, how do I get my son into making the right choices so that he doesn't lose his soul in worldly pursuits, but still encourage him in his aspirations? Is there a happy medium? Concerned mom of five, Liz. Yeah, I love the question. Uh, And I think that I wouldn't be so, and I don't think you are, but just some people get very cynical on this. Like, oh, everybody online is just trying to make money. And people say that about corporate America, too. People are just greedy and capitalism. I, I would be a little bit more reserved on that because, and, and by the way, I am a critic of some people who do that. There are literally some people who have never built anything and online they're telling you how to build great things and how to lead great things. And they have, they've literally never led anything or anyone. They just wrote something that people liked or they were able to be fancy with an algorithm in order to get a bunch of views and and they have popularity, but nothing to back it up. There's a real thing there. 
But for the most part, there's a lot of people out there who do have something to offer. And I think the fatal error is making these things compete against each other. See, God wants everyone to be holy. God wants everyone to know the truth. And God wants everyone to go to heaven. Now, he also doesn't not want us to have entertainment. He doesn't not want us to have politics. He doesn't not want us to have business leaders. So therefore, if you're going to be in these things, which are highly paid, including athletics, then you're going to get the reward that goes with them. And again, you know, it's the money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And, you know, there's certain cautions against money and certain cautions against power and fame and wealth that are very, very real. Why? Because with these things, you have great temptations, but also a fear of them and not pursuing them is bearing your talents. And we know what happened there, right? So it's important to basically not make them compete against each other. It's to more or less say, if I'm going to go do something that has a big reward, I'm going to make sure that I am so grounded and I am so close to the Lord that I know what I'm supposed to do with that power, that money, that authority. And we also have to remember that there's nothing in the Bible that says if your home is under 2,000 square feet, you're going to heaven. And if it's over 3,000 square feet, you'll probably spend a little bit more time in purgatory. And all those people who have a 5,000 square foot or larger home are, you know, doomed. It doesn't say that. We have to have detachment from these things. I am pretty certain that I'm going to meet somebody in heaven who drove a Ferrari. Okay, pretty sure that's going to be the case. Um, uh, maybe outnumbered by people who didn't, okay, but I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. So I think what happens, particularly for young men, is if we look at them and we say, you need to be sheepish about what it is you're going to accomplish, um, and we start to give them this message that high levels of success or even enjoying some of that success is a problem they're, they're, they're going to be conflicted, I think, in a particular way. And, and by the way, remember, this, there's a relative thing that's important here. Most people in America who live a middle-class life would be considered the most wealthy person ever in a lot of countries. And people would say, your life is so elaborate that it's unnecessary to have a Ford and a Chevy. And, you know, your house has three bedrooms in it. And my town has one hut and nobody has a car. Well, again, you know, that person in America would not say that they wouldn't be judging themselves for being wealthy. Okay, Um, and so there's this is just the super important part of this. Don't don't think of the financial side. Say, hey, listen, um, if you listen to that person and they can teach you something about building something, build it. But remember this, you want to be detached from all of those items even if you have them. And don't deceive yourself into believing that you can go pursue all sorts of material goods and not actually be confused about your your priorities. So how do we package that? How do we teach that in an appropriate manner? Well, we have to live according to our our post in life, okay? If you have uh, an income of $50,000 and you try to buy a Ferrari and a Rolex in order to impress people, you're way off base, But if you build your business and you sell it for tens of millions of dollars and you give, you know, millions of dollars to charities and you're donating time, money and effort and you happen to also have a Ferrari and a Rolex, well, that actually makes a whole lot of sense. It's where you are in life. You're not over exaggerating or overspending to do it. And you're helping a lot of people along the way, employing a lot of people. And I think this is an important way to look at this because young people do aspire 
to the materialistic world that is out there. And I have learned that it's generally speaking a losing argument to come at them right away telling them how wrong that is. And it's a losing argument for two reasons. One is they're attracted to it. Okay. And if that's sort of like Um, motivation is there from them and it's going to prevent them from being the person who's staying at home for 10 or 15 years doing nothing on the couch looking at social media and they've got some ambitions that can lead to certain good things well I don't think you want to necessarily crush that you want to form it you want to redirect it the second reason that I think it's a problem is exactly what I just talked about before there's no cutoff there's no cutoff anywhere in the Bible or in the catechism which says a certain amount of wealth is bad there are wealthy saints out there but there is that, that, that last point that I have, which is to just really make sure that they're, they're not self-deceived and they're being you know, formed appropriately. And they know that there are definitely additional cautions that have to take place when they have power, fame, and wealth. Great insights, Dave. I think I could have used those maybe five to 10 years ago myself, but I appreciate the insights there. So the last question that I have here for you in the last five minutes of our segment is uh, from Anthony. He says, your interview with Tom was incredible. It's been a huge help in my faith life. However, candidly, I feel as if I haven't accomplished as much as I could have. I'm 35 and married, have a stable job in IT and a modest salary, but with the looming costs of college coming up, rising bills and a few bad investments, it seems as if I'm spinning my wheels and I'm going backwards. Tom's story brought to light how much one man can accomplish and still give back to the church and ultimately our Lord. If you were in my shoes, what would you recommend I do an aspiring giant, Anthony? Yeah, that's a great question, Anthony. The first thing I would tell you is just relax. Okay, 35 is not as old as you think. Now, I love the fact that you've been productive and 35. A lot of people are actually acting like they're still 17 when they're 35, so you have a lot of headway. Um, and so I think just calming down and knowing that you have plenty of time ahead of you to get things done. In fact, you basically have your whole lifetime ahead of you. You know, with the way people understand uh, modern medicine and modern health, there's a lot of people that are choosing not to retire until they're even 70 years old. That's double your lifetime, okay? You've only been really productive as an adult, assuming that you graduated from college when you were 22, for 13 meager years. You've got three times that, basically, to get started on this, okay? And, and, and you're probably going to be so productive that you wouldn't have to work till 70. But the point is, there's plenty of time for you to do that. Now, what you want to do is take all the experiences you have and realize that you have banked a lot of knowledge from that experience so you know what turns to take and what turns not to take. There's something in, in decision-making that um, says, you know, take action on things. You hear me talk about prudence a lot, and I say there's three steps to prudence. Desire what is good, know what is real, and then pursue what is good. Well, if you're um, helping guide people as a military leader through, you know, uh, rough terrain where enemy, uh, enemies may or may not be there, you have to make decisions. And your one decision you can't make is just do nothing. Even if your plan is to sit tight because it's the best strategy for a period of time and then move, that is doing something, okay? It's not just doing nothing. When people freeze, there is no plan to sit still. It's just that they sit still. If your plan isn't to sit still, but your plan is to move, you might not know exactly where to move. You use all of your training and you still say, I need to go left, So you go left, and when you go left, you discover something, and now you need to alter that a little bit to the right. That's called iterative decision-making, right? So you're you're basically, you're constantly making small little changes, all right, in order to get to the big decision you need to make. 
That's what you're going to do. So when you're going to take action on something, don't expect that it's going to just succeed overnight. I've started a lot of businesses that don't look anything like the business that I started, but I took action on it. So there's enough happening that I could make the changes that need to be made. And that's something that you can do too. You might want to start a new business or you might want to take a look at the way you're managing your money a little bit differently, rein in some of the spending that you have, expand the investments that you have. You might want to look at different things you've never looked at before, but like buying hard assets, like certain real estate, you might learn to leverage yourself a little bit differently. So you just want to pay pay attention to these last experiences and use the maturity that you have right now with hope. But if you don't have the hope and you don't have the confidence that you can get something out of this, you really are going to shut yourself down mentally and emotionally. And that is a non-starting thing. So just make sure you start making a decision and then just make alternate plans as you go or small little iterative changes in order to get to the last place you need to be. Yeah, thanks for that, Dave. I appreciate it. And definitely, I know a lot of our audience uh, appreciates that. So if you have questions directly for Dave, go ahead and send them to Dave at LeadingGiants.com. We definitely enjoy your questions and all of your feedback and input as well there. Thanks again for tuning in to the Dave Duran Show. We'll see you back next Saturday at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. God bless. God bless.